We are starting, though, talking about health care and specifically talking about a bill perhaps you've not heard too much about, but it is raising concern for a lot of health care professionals talking about Bill 36. And joining us now to talk more about this is Jennifer Lush, a BC family doctor. Dr. Lush, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. It is something that I've seen some other health professionals raising concerns about. I was at the chiropractor a few weeks ago. He was raising concerns about this as well. Can you talk a little bit about Bill 36 and what this is doing as far as the colleges that oversee medical professionals? Sure. Well, I think the really important thing is it isn't just healthcare professionals that should be concerned about Bill 36. Every British Columbian should actually be paying attention to and learning more about this bill because it overrides so many rights and freedoms we have quite rightly come to expect as citizens of a Western democratic society. And it was rushed through legislature with no opportunity for public consultation or debate on the same day it was introduced. Uh, so I, I fear that it has uh, potential recriminations, not just for healthcare professionals, but also for British Columbians as uh, users of the healthcare system. And that's certainly one of the concerns that's been brought forward in that this is a very large document. I think it's almost 300 pages. And it, like you said, kind of sailed through the legislature without a lot of con- uh, conversation about this. When we look at it, though, so one of the things this does is kind of streamlines the college. What is it taking it from from 15 colleges down to a, a much slow, a much lower number? It groups different healthcare professionals together, and I've seen some of the concerns as well. Is who exactly is going to be sitting on those colleges, and and the fact that that it won't necessarily say the College of Doctors. It's not necessarily going to be doctors on on that college board. How concerned are you about that? I'm very concerned because essentially these college boards will now be government appointees. And British Columbians have to ask themselves, do they trust that the government is going to operate uh, in the best interests of health care? Uh, or does it leave open the potential for the government of the day to push their own agenda? And have you been given any reason or any explanation for that change? I mean, on the on the one hand, maybe you, people will look at this and say, OK, if we can amalgamate colleges, anytime we can amalgamate administration and maybe cut down on those costs, that's a good thing. But this is a pretty big change going from elected board members to government appointed board members. Have you been giving, given any explanation as to why that change was made? Well, that's the issue, isn't it, Jill, is there was no public discussion or debate, so there has been no reason given for these changes, uh, and it's, it's of great concern. I, I was speaking to several colleagues this morning who, even as physicians, did not know of Bill 36 or the changes that it's introducing. Uh, you know, I think we would all say that the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, is certainly due for maybe refreshing and, an, you know, a look at its operating procedures. And I would welcome, for example, the inclusion of more community members on the board of College of Physicians and Surgeons to, well, to you know, represent patient interests. But to have a solely government-appointed board that is being given unilateral power to arbitrate uh, licensure conditions, to mandate medical interventions, a, a government-appointed board that can compel a doctor or other healthcare professional to comply with their direction is very scary.
One of the reasons as well, given, has been a lack of transparency when it comes to these boards. And even in some cases, a lack of information being offered up, questions being asked by the media, by the public. But what's unclear I think still is how a government appointed board will be different or if it's going to improve transparency. Do you think that is an issue as far as information that should be available to the public, to patients, to to anybody that's looking for it? I am a huge advocate of transparency, and I think that's something that is imperative moving forward. But I believe that one of the clauses of Bill 36 is that the college or one could say the government powers can be kept secret and free of debate. So it actually, uh, it actually is sort of bringing into law that there is no need for transparency. Uh, so as I say, this is one of the reasons why British Columbians should be very concerned because it is giving the government uh, the, the rights to any sort of disciplinary tribunal without any need for debate. Uh, the government can impose huge fines or even jail time on your healthcare professionals, not necessarily for criminal activity, but just for, you know, actions that might be seen as misleading. Uh, You know, I I think healthcare professionals are now afraid to perhaps speak up, you know, to the media or to, you know, to to criticize the college because will we face reprisals, uh, you know, in in terms of disciplinary action uh, for speaking out and trying to be transparent? The other really important thing that that I think British Columbians need to be aware of is one of the clauses of Bill 36 states that the government can seize and copy your private clinical records at any time. And this is huge to me because one of the sacred tenets of a doctor-patient relationship is confidentiality. And I believe that Bill 36 is giving the government power to access patients' private medical records. And I think every British Columbian should be asking questions about this. And would it be under certain circumstances or, I mean, that should be, I think, alarming to people if if that extends that power or may, brings that power in that they could seize and copy medical records. What, what would what would some of the reasons be for that? Do you know? Well, I mean, currently, the only reason to break confidentiality is if, you know, somebody's life is in danger or a child's welfare is in danger. And that's very defensible, right? I don't think any of us would question that. But this uh, expands those powers and I think is nebulous. And, you know, as it says, um, the powers can be kept secret and free of debate. So, uh, you know, I don't think that the college board will need uh, justification for why they're requesting a doctor's records. It, they can compel the, the healthcare professional to comply, comply with their direction. So um, I think this represents a grave uh, concern for all of us as patients utilizing the healthcare system. You know, we don't want necessarily the government to have access to private consultations you have with your doctor about perhaps marital issues or, you know, personal mental health struggles. Uh, everybody has a right to confidentiality and, and this potentially uh, compromises that right. Absolutely. And when we're talking about medical records, I mean, technically, don't they belong to the patient? They, they do, and they should. Uh, so this is this is the thing, right? You know, this is raising enough red flags and alarm bells that at the very least, it should be a matter for public discussion, public consultation and debate before it's brought into law. And I don't understand why the current government would have rushed it through uh, the approval process in one day in legislature 
unless there are clauses in there that they knew would not be well received by the public. So, you know, if this is a totally legitimate way to increase transparency and improve health care for British Columbians, then let's repeal it. Let's have an honest look at it. Let's open it to public discussion. And if it is, you know, all of that, then it will go through without any difficulty. But I'm afraid it is not that. And I'm afraid that this is really going to create a climate of mistrust uh, between healthcare professionals and the government, which is not good when we are already in a healthcare crisis. And we need to keep the healthcare professionals we have. We need to be able to recruit more to the province. And I know of physicians who have actually taken proactive steps and are applying for licensure in other provinces now simply because of Bill 36. And that is not what we need at this time in this province. Hmm. And the irony as well of if it's a bill that's being sold as a way to bring about better transparency that was done, like you said, so quickly and with very little, uh, if any, debate that took place. Uh, we're seeing pushback from from different groups, uh, BC Nurses Union, Doctors of BC, and uh, I'm so thankful that you came on the show today to talk about this as well. Uh, and this is from, from what little is out there or from what little has been shared and, and and is being talked about. If we are already seeing this amount of pushback, are you confident at all that we might see something change or at least some more attention paid to this? Well, I would say this is a chance for David Eby to step up and show what kind of a leader he's going to be of this government, right? Is he going to listen to his constituents and his healthcare professionals who have a right to be alarmed by the lack of transparency? I think now is the time for courageous leadership and the the courageous decision would be to repeal this bill, open it up, let's all take an honest look at what it is actually bringing into law, have a public discussion and debate about it, and then ensure that any decisions being made or changes being made are being made in the best interests of British Columbians and their health care. Uh, this bill actually also prompted a recall petition against the Premier, against David Eby. We can look at recall petitions in this province. They generally don't go anywhere, but it is at least drawing more attention to this. And, and the person behind the recall petition quotes or, or talks about Bill 36, saying that that was a motivating factor, that this is this is not okay, the way that this was brought about and what this bill does. Do you think that at least it is getting a bit more attention now that it's it's the the factor behind a recall campaign? I think I think we need more discussion of it. And so I'm really encouraged to see that the media is now highlighting it because it kind of, you know, it snuck through on November 24th and nobody really knew what it was representing. But the more that we learn about it, the more alarmed we as healthcare professionals are, not just for our own interests, but because of what it represents for our patients. Uh, and so I, I, I thank you as a, you know, as a radio media personality for shining a light on it. And I think really British Columbians should be writing to their MLAs and demanding that the government represent their uh, interests and, and represent fair democratic process and give the opportunity for this to be uh, repealed and looked at again. All right. Well, we will continue looking at this and following up on this. Dr. Jennifer Lush, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jill. All the best. It has been a very busy day when talking about airline travel. As you've been hearing on the news in the United States, a computer glitch led to 
a lot of flights being grounded. Things are getting back on track, but as you can imagine, a huge backlog. That and Nexus, so many things to talk about today with Claire Newell. And she joins us now as she does every Wednesday afternoon. Claire, Claire, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Jill, what a rude awakening this morning, though. You know, this was... um just compounded what we've been dealing with for the past three weeks, you know, with the nasty weather over the holidays, with all those delays and the cancellation, and then unrest in Brazil and Peru and the Sinaloa region of Mexico. And now this, what a rough start for 2023 for the travel industry. Um, This started, uh, I actually woke up this morning, Jill, to wash my hair at 5 a.m., checked my phone and had a station back east saying, hey, can you be on TV in 10 minutes? So needless to say, I started work early this morning, no hair wash, talking about this. And when I first looked at what was happening, it was really only hundreds of flights that had been um, canceled or delays. That number, uh, it's actually as of about 30 minutes ago, uh, 8,000 flights have been delayed in the U.S. uh, and over 1,200 cancellations already. And in fact, I expect that to climb throughout the day just because of the whole ripple, you know, domino effects that are felt. So this is flights within, into, and from the U.S. So I did check YVR just before coming on. And when I checked this morning at around 5.36 a.m., really there was, it seemed virtually unaffected. And now I'm starting to see kind of the wave effect now. And we are seeing some uh, departure delays Uh, some, you know, 90 minutes. I mean, I'm seeing them between 15 and 90 minutes. So really uh, important to check the flight status of your flight. Um, You can do that on the airline's website or the airport that you're flying out of's website and sign up for those alerts. I know YVR.ca is fantastic. You can actually click a little button that says notify me and they will um, notify you as things change. Just a reminder, if you're picking somebody up at the airport, some arrivals are also late. Again, not major, but some, you know, 30 to 90 minutes. So you don't want to be sitting waiting at the airport uh, for somebody to, to come in. So do check check your flights. Yeah. And do we know any more? I, I know it was a, the FAA system outage, but do we yeah. know anything more about how, I mean, it just seems like you're right. I, I first saw this and then just saw as things got worse and worse and thought, how did this happen? Yeah, especially it's the first time I've ever heard of um, this system, we call it NOTAM in the industry, but it's the notice to air emissions. It's basically telling pilots if there's something that's affecting the safety of their flights, like is something on the runway or whatever. It's basically, a, it houses that data and that information. So when the ground stop was put on, it's the first time that I saw airlines grounded since 9-11, Jill. Mm. You know, and I know it wasn't for a long time. Operations did start at some airports around 8.15 Eastern uh 8.15 a.m. Eastern time, uh, basically out of Atlanta and then Newark. And then slowly they increased. The, the ground stop was actually lifted at 9 a.m. Eastern time. But um, we, you and I have reported before on things where it's maybe, you know, an airline has a system that goes down and it affects the check-in process and there's delays that are. But for it to be nationwide, all airlines right across the U.S., it just was uh, it should never happen. And you can bet that if it was um, 
they're going to look into this. There's going to be lots of questions about the root cause of this problem. You know, is it old software? What needs to be done? What went wrong? Right now, um, they're, they're not really giving a reason. They're, they, they, officials have said that there's no evidence of foul play, um, but they're not ruling out like a cyber attack or anything. So really no reason at this time, but they will want answers. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. All right. So we will watch what's happening with that. We also want to quickly touch on, and I know you were you were talking about this yesterday, but Nexus and, and a bit of a workaround solution or at least a temporary solution to try and deal with that backlog. Yeah, I, I guess it's some good news if you're looking for pre-clearance with the Nexus centers. Um finally potentially reopening. I mean, we don't have exact dates, um, but that's expected in the coming weeks and months. So welcome news for people because at one point the backlog reached 300,000 and currently, and it's only been for a couple of months, there's only two locations open for interviews in Canada. Both of them are in, in Ontario, so it doesn't do us a lot of good unless you're willing to fly there. But in spring, they are saying that they will reopen enrollment at the eight airports where the U.S. pre-clearance services are available. And YVR is one of them. It's basically all of the, the big airports across Canada, which is really good news. Um, and you know what's so frustrating? This dispute was over protection of American officers at Canadian locations. So that really was the thing that contributed to the backlog of applications because they wouldn't open until there was some sort of workaround. What that is in the background, Jill, I'm not sure, uh, but it is welcome news and there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. All right, that is good, again, for anybody in that scenario. Let's talk about some recent advisories because I know people do have a lot of questions about still wanting to travel but staying safe and making sure we're going to places and knowing exactly what you might be getting into. Yeah, and there have been recent advisories and warnings that have put up and um Mexico was one and Brazil and Peru. And I just, I think what I really want to do is remind people that um, things can turn on a dime. And before you ever hand over your credit card to any uh, travel agent or airline uh, or travel supplier, you really need to go to the government's website. That If you are a longtime listener of CKNW, you'll know I've talked about it like a broken record. But travel.gc.ca has the latest information any advisories and warnings and health information, um, it, it is really a must for any traveler leaving Canada to read. But not just before you hand over your credit card, you should be looking at this, you know, the day or two before you leave so you know what's going on in a destination. And it's not to say you just turn off your phone and not know what's going on in the world around you once you land and drink Mai Tais on the beach. You really do need to know what's going on and stay alert. And so you, there's lots of apps that you can um you can download for information. You just you just put in where you're going to be, and it will give you local news that you need to know about while traveling. But you should also register every trip. You know the, what's happened in um, places like Brazil, where there's um, political unrest, or Peru, where now there's a nationwide state of emergency that's been approaching the 30-day mark, um, and uh, Ottawa now advising people to avoid non-essential travel, or the the spark in cartel violence that happened in the Sinaloa region on January 5th, and you know the airport there was closed for about 36 hours uh, into MZT, which is the Mazatlan Airport. That affects people, and it can happen so quickly. And that's why it's so important to register every trip and, you know, find out the information. Take your own safety upon yourself. And this is one of the best resources to do that with.
All right, that is good advice any time of year whenever you are traveling. Let's uh, take a look at uh, some other things happening. And I had forgotten that this was even a requirement, but uh, the U.S. and the vaccine mandate uh, has been extended. I know. Uh, So the U.S. extended the mandatory vaccinations for air arrivals until April the 10th. And I, my, my, um, email and um, text kind of blew up people saying, do I need to have a COVID test? And no, it's proof of still the same proof of vaccination status. Uh, and this April 10th date could be extended. So um, it was definitely a controversial move. <laughs> I think that people were expecting. I, I actually looked twice when I and read the headlines that, you know, that they had extended it. I had thought that they would drop it, um, but it leaves the U.S. as one of the only countries in the world to enforce vaccine mandates on their aircraft, so, uh, so this is or still on the passengers. The, right, okay, so this is still, if you're flying to the U.S., then you do it when you, you if you're checking in online or when you That's check right. in at the airport, you just have to have that proof, right? Proof of vaccination. So most people will go and um, get the, the information, and it's the federal one, the one that has um, the the canadian flag on it and you can get that through the bc services card it's the same it's been since the pandemic and and this came into play so just make sure you've got that on hand either a printed copy or a digital copy of your vaccination status all right until at least april 10th yeah all right let's uh look this is a fun one delta I guess trying to kind of uh, lure more passengers and show how great it is to fly with delta if you want to be connected providing free wi-fi yeah, so you have to be part of their loyalty program, but their loyalty program is free to join, but accessing free Wi-Fi, this is something they've been looking at for, for a while, but as of February 1st, they're going to give free Wi-Fi to all customers on almost all of their mainline domestic flights, and they're hoping that that will continue on to international and the small regional aircraft by the end of 2024. So big news. I mean, they will be the first of the big four U.S. airlines to do this. I I, I do expect more airlines um, not just in the U.S., but, you know, JetBlue has started to offer it. Here in Canada, Porter, who just like next month, like literally like a, a month from now, starts flying to YVR. They're going to be offering free Wi-Fi to their passengers on their new fleet of uh, Embraers, which are the ones that they'll use to go across the country. So, you know, they're doing whatever they can. It's technology has come a long way. It's much more affordable and it's much better than it's that it's been in the past. So I'm sure that's why airlines are now saying, you know what, may as well start to offer it. We, You and I mentioned um, in weeks ago that the EU will have to, uh, um, they'll have the technology to allow calls and, and streaming. Right. So that's going to be an interesting change starting uh, in summer of this year, uh, if you're heading over to to uh, to Europe as well. And just before we get to some deals, one other comment, and this kind of goes to, or one other story to what we were talking about with the the chaos in the flights today and so many flights. But for anybody that was caught up in the holiday chaos, there are some uh, refunds and some some goodwill gestures. Yeah, so the airlines were pretty good about allowing uh, full refunds or waiving cancellation fees for certain windows uh, during that whole time period. But WestJet did extend their full refund eligibility for cancellation. So the window of the travel uh, had to be 
booked or changed by December the 28th for travel between the 18th of December and January 8th of this year. So just um, you may be eligible for a refund and just keep that in mind. The other thing that's so important is during this whole thing is to, you know, travel insurance um, is, is something that you really might want to consider moving forward if uh, on trips because people who had travel insurance would have uh, received some sort of compensation that others may not have. And also keeping receipts for any expenses incurred just to get some money back. It depends on the reason for the delay or the cancellation. The airline might come to the table, but that travel and, you know, travel insurance will, will certainly help you if you've got um, cancellation and interruption included as part of your, your policy. All right. Let's get people some deals. What do you have for us today? <laughs> well, one that kind of made me do a double take was this nine night Canada and New England cruise. It's leaving on October the 19th. Really great itinerary. Um, it's actually sailing round trip from New York. Sometimes I like those because doing a round trip is just so much easier for the flight to con- connect to it. But the nine night cruise with a 50 US dollar onboard credit, 599. The taxes are 326. That is a, a bargain for a, a nine night Canada and New England cruise. And if you think about it, October 19th, perfect time to see the fall colors. Like it's just beautiful in that part of the world to see the fall foliage. Um, the next one I've got is Puerto Vallarta at the end of this month, January the 25th or 27th, air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront, all-inclusive resort, $8.95. I haven't seen it under 900, so I wanted to just share that one. Taxes are $4.80. Um, and do we have time for one more kind of a bucket yes, list? Yes, please. Okay, this is cool. And it's um, a lot cheaper. I know it's still going to be very expensive to hear the price. But um, if you've ever looked into this, you will know that this is actually a really great deal. It is Bora Bora and staying in an overwater bungalow. <laughs> and so this you could do February 1st right through until December 20th. This would be like if you're doing a really special occasion, a birthday or an anniversary, how cool would this be? It's The package includes the flight, then seven nights in an overwater bungalow, breakfast every day, a one-hour tour, and the airport transfers, $58.89 tax included. And just to give you a reference, because not everyone's looked into this type of thing before, without air, I've priced packages for seven nights without the airfare for that kind of money. All right. So it's a pretty good deal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yes, definitely a a once in a lifetime experience. Claire, thank you so much. We will talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Jill. Well, how much do you walk or cycle or do you wish maybe you did a little bit more? How much does your neighborhood come into play when deciding whether you're going to walk, cycle or maybe take a different mode of transportation? Well, a new study, it was a global study of almost 40,000 adults, takes a look at that. And joining us to talk a bit more about it is Scott Lear, Professor Health Sciences and the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at SFU. Professor Lear, thank you so much for being back with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks a lot. I know you were very involved in this study as well. So what were you specifically looking at as far as how we perceive our communities and what the communities look like and how that kind of uh, plays into how we get around? Yeah. So we asked uh, these individuals, the participants, what features they saw in their communities. So um, from aesthetics 
to something we call mixed land use, where you have a mix of residential, commercial, retail, as well as things like presence of sidewalks, uh, street connectivity, so areas that are more like a grid-like with a lot of four-way stops, uh, more connectivity than things that have cul-de-sacs and dead ends. And we call it perception because it's their, their report, and we understand that people of different genders and also different age may perceive something differently. Like, for example, the bank may be a five-minute walk from for me, but it might be a 10, 15-minute walk for my elderly neighbor. And then we also ask them about their physical activity patterns as well. Right. And, and interesting when you mentioned that, because you're right, depending on your level of, of mobility or, or age and all of those different factors, you're right, the, the perception of a community could be very, very different. Yeah, for, for sure. And in, in general, in other studies, commonly see things like uh, safety, street lighting to be more important for women and elderly than they are for, let's say, younger males. So that can that comes to a point of how safe do you feel going walking, whether it's during the day or even at nighttime. So those things can make a, a difference based on the person, as opposed to other studies that I've been involved in and others where we go around and objectively say, is there a sidewalk there? Is there um, mixed land use and how close is it? And we measure it in numbers, but uh, it really comes down to what you see in your own community that might um, dictate whether you feel comfortable or whether it's easy to go walking or cycling. And which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, that somebody would be more uh, more willing to or would, would find it, if it's, if it's more accessible or if it's easier to do that, then it would make sense, wouldn't it, that, that people will choose that more often? Yes, definitely. So um, we know that, and, and from our research, we found that people living in communities where there was that mix of residential, retail, where there was greater uh, street connectivity, those people walked more and cycled more, as well as having infrastructure for walking and and cycling. So when there's mixed land use retail around, people will walk or cycle to those places as their transportation instead of getting in a car. When there's street connectivity, it's easier to get to places as opposed to if you envision a development that has a lot of cul-de-sacs and dead ends, you can't really walk anywhere and going even a short distance by the crow is long distance walking or, or cycling. Did you find a kind of a general rule or a cutoff point in that the kind of the distance or the time that people will walk that if something is say 15 minutes away, it seems doable. So it's somewhere that that would be something that people would be, okay, I will walk that. Whereas if it's 35 minutes, maybe that's too much. Yes, uh, definitely. There's this notion of uh, the 15-minute community where you can get most of your day-to-day amenities within a a 15-minute walk. Other studies have uh, indicated that if things are within a mile from where somebody lives, 40% of people will walk to that destination. And so we make this... um, Without even thinking about it, we make this uh, assessment in our head. How long is it going to take? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be longer for me to get in my car, drive in this, like, 
densely populated area and then find parking and then get to the store. A lot of times a walk or a bicycle trip especially are going to get you there faster. And because this was a global study and looking at countries around the world and again, 40,000, almost 40,000 adults, what kind of differences then did you see in different countries, say Canada versus some other countries, maybe that have similar GDP or similar incomes, but, but maybe different outcome, different takes on this? Well, usually what we see around the countries that have similar GDP, there's a, a, a lot of similarities. It's more when we look at cross countries with varying amounts. And it's not only the infrastructure that's different, but the patterns of activity. So in lower income countries, there's more reliance on walking and cycling for transportation as opposed to in higher income, it's more our activity is leisure based. And uh, what we also find, and it's similar in high-income and low-income countries that the wealthier communities tend to have more of these facilitators or the infrastructure to support uh, walking and cycling, whereas even within the same country, the lower-income areas, they don't have sidewalks, they don't have bike paths, and a lot of those low-income areas in in lower-income countries Walking and cycling is the only way to get around because uh, car ownership is much less as well. Right. So it's not that you're choosing to do that or that's your preferred method. It's really the only way to get from A to B. Yeah. And yes. And in another analysis from the similar pure study from which we derived the current study, we found that in high income countries, a bicycle was a exercise tool. People used it for exercise, whereas in lower-income country, it was like a labor-saving device. It was faster than walking. And so it's used uh, and viewed much differently. It's a a tool to get uh, A to B or get to work or get to market or things like that, whereas a lot of us use our bicycles or when we have leisure time outside of work time. And do you think that would be a good thing if people looked at that or or changed it? Because I know it also found that levels of physical activity, a lot of people are not meeting kind of those recommended goals. Would that perhaps be a way of doing that if you were able to incorporate that more in your day-to-day life, not just, say, leisure activity? Oh, definitely, definitely. You're spot on there. And uh there's only about 20 to 25 percent of Canadians who meet the recommended guidelines of 150 minutes per week or 20 to 30 minutes per day. I like that the idea of promoting activity that kind of does multiple things, so commuting, running errands, either walking or, or on your bicycle. And th- these are things that I kind of call like stealth exercise, where you're doing it for something else, but you're getting your activity and exercise in, so you don't really notice it. It's not like making a trip to go to the gym and get on your spin bike. You're, so building those two things in. And so it's all about making it easier for people, uh, making it uh, the perception of safety. And in the end, you know, municipalities benefit. Putting in a bike lane is cheaper than putting in a road. There's less maintenance over time as well. And so there's a 
And even, you know, we would always hear these concerns of the new bike lanes going in that businesses are complaining about the parking. Well, the studies in Canada and elsewhere find that bike lanes actually improve the number of, increase the number of people going into those retail places and they spend longer because they're not worried about their parking expiring. All right. Well, very interesting findings from this global study. Uh, We'll leave it there, but great to chat with you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. As you might have heard in the news, the votes have been counted. The brownies will now officially be known as Embers. Girl Guides of Canada announced the name change earlier today after an invitation where members of the guiding community were able to cast their votes on two names that were in the running. It came down to the Comets or the Embers, and again, the Embers will be the new name. Well, joining us to talk about this is Diamond Isinger, Provincial Commissioner with the BC Girl Guides of Canada. Diamond, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Always glad to chat. Well, this was, uh, we talked about this when it was first announced that Girl Guides was going to be looking for a new name for Brownies. Uh, what are your thoughts on the new name, The Embers? Well, personally, I'm, I'm pretty excited to move forward with a new name for this age group. Uh, we have, for over a century, offered such great programming for girls and women in BC and across Canada. And from a personal perspective, I actually volunteer with this age group every week. And certainly there's a lot of excitement about moving forward with a new name that makes everyone feel included. And can you remind us again the issue with the name Brownies and why this whole process came about in changing the name? Yeah, just a bit of backstory. You mentioned uh, late last year we had announced that we were planning to change the name of that Brownies branch as a step to make sure that we removed barriers to belonging and participation for racialized girls. We had heard from some current and former members that the name had caused them harm or that they really weren't comfortable with it. Uh, Some didn't want to be part of the age group because of that name or wanted to skip that age group and come back when they were older. And so when we heard that very straightforward feedback, we said it is important to us to change a name to make sure that all the great things that we do at Girl Guides remain the same, all of the fun and the friendship and the adventure and the empowerment, we're still doing that. But we're calling this one age group by a new and exciting name. And so why does each age group then need to be a different name? When we, we have the kind of the all-encompassing Girl Guides and Girl Guides of Canada, why can't it just be different age groups and everybody is a Girl Guide? That's a great question. I would say we have some special stories to do with the different age groups, some different traditions. We actually use different colors to identify the different age groups. So the embers actually are orange, for example. It's just a special way for girls to experience Girl Guides at different ages um, as they sort of level up, as they advance through the different what we call branches or programs within Girl Guides. Of course, schools use, for example, numbers to refer to their their uh, grades, but we're actually grouped into multi-year cohorts together in Girl Guides, so it makes sense for us to refer to them by a name like Ember. All right, and I understand as well uh, some comments from Girl Guides Canada, the CEO. Uh, she had said that Embers was the clear winner, so it sounds like it did get a, a not, uh, not that it was close or we were looking at a potential tie, but it sounds like it did get the bulk of the votes. It was overwhelmingly popular, and uh, Girl Guides 
past and present members of this age group. They had the chance to give their feedback through a nationwide online opportunity to to vote, to engage. And from that, we chose the name Embers. I really like the name Embers because our program is so focused on adventure and the outdoors. And for those who are extra familiar with Girl Guides, our younger age group for five and six-year-olds is actually called Sparks. So the progression of these names is really exciting for girls to be part of Girl Guides. And I understand as well that that this was for all of the reasons that you just mentioned, that's why this came about and there was a renaming of brownies, that it wasn't specifically to as as kind of a, a drive to get more members. But I understand that you have seen more members sign up. Yeah, Girl Guides is in is an exceptionally high demand. I can speak for British Columbia. We have uh, this year, a wait list of over 1,200 additional girls who are trying to join Girl Guides and that we're seeking to find spots for them to be a part of it, um, as well as new volunteers to come forward to help with that. This change of a name isn't, isn't meant to bring in new people, but if new people are inspired by the fact that we're seeking to be a safe and supportive environment for all girls, then we welcome them to get involved. Is that uh, exceptional or to have 1,200 people on the, the wait list, girls on the wait list? Is that, is that a large number? It's a pretty large number for us. I mean, I think it speaks to the need for safe and supportive environments for girls, especially after the last few years that have been extra challenging for youth. Um, we offer a lot of opportunities for girls to connect with new friends, to benefit from positive role models, and to really just be themselves and feel included. And so we see that there's a lot of demand for that from families across BC, and we work very hard to try to include as many kids as we can. But, of course, we also welcome new people to get involved as volunteers so that we have enough adults out there to be those role models for youth. Will anything else change then? I mean, obviously, it won't, you won't have anything with the, the kind of brownies language on it, but does this mean there will also be a change to the uniform or the, the badges or what else changes with the name? Our uniform is actually a modern T-shirt or tunic in the color navy for all of our different age groups. Um, Our different age groups are at times identified by colors like orange for embers. And so we look forward to uh, adapting a little bit of our communication uh, starting today all the way until September 1st as we update different materials of ours. Because, of course, the current name is used uh, across various websites, various documents. So we'll take some time to replace that. But certainly for me, as a volunteer with this age group, we will immediately begin referring to our activities as being part of the Embers program. All right. Uh, Well, very interesting uh, change and uh, overwhelming, as uh, you mentioned, support for this name above the others. Diamond, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too.